At this time, I'd like to welcome back our friend of the congregation, Dave Allen. We're grateful to have you back and preach for us. Brother Dave, bless us this morning uh, from God's Word. Thank you, Tim. Good morning again. Christmas brings a lot of things, including germs. So I'm speaking to you with a cold. I hope you don't mind. Uh, but uh, how was your Christmas? Um, mine was pretty good. Um, all was calm and all was bright, right? That's the way Christmas is supposed to be. Well, all three of my adult children were in, in town, and uh, I have two grandchildren, three and one, which is why I have a cold right now. Uh, Christmas dinner this year was at our house. We had 14 uh, at the table that started in our tiny kitchen and then extended into the next room with some card tables and such. Um, so you can kind of uh, imagine the idea of calm in, in, in our uh, Christmas celebration was, was really not that calm. It was more chaotic and fun. Uh, we played a competitive game of Christmas Jeopardy. And if you know the competitive spirit in my family, um, wasn't very Christmassy in some of the attitudes, especially since my team did not win. Uh, we watched the Eagles game in segments because some of my family, for some reason, doesn't like sports, and so we can only watch it in sections, and that frustrated the sports side of my family. So it was a tad chaotic, but it was joyful nonetheless. Uh, then, the day after Christmas, I got my cold. And I, I'm a middle school uh, math teacher, so I, I get a lot of germs from, from week to week, and so Usually it doesn't affect me, but this one really knocked me out. And so NyQuil gave me a few silent nights, which was great. Um, I am feeling better, but still have some of the residual effects here. But Christmas is, is just about over. The spirit of Christmas is fading, and it's time to look into the future, especially as we sit here on 123123. Did you recognize that? Did you realize that? That it is 12, 31, 23. It's 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. Usually only math teachers notice that. But um, the question is, what do you see when you look out on the year 2024? We're saying goodbye to 2023. What do we see as we look out to 2024? Where the picture, I got to tell you, isn't very pretty. You know there's political conflicts that are raging around the world. We have the war in Israel. We have the war in Ukraine. There's political crisis here at home. We have a president in cognitive decline. We have a southern border that is uh, just unprotected. We live in a culture that can't define what a woman is. We're in a moral tailspin in many cases. The church worldwide, as we've already heard, is experiencing persecution like it never has before. There's an organization called the Open Doors World Watch, and they reported 30 years ago that Christians faced extreme levels of persecution in 40 countries. That was 30 years ago. Today, that number has nearly doubled to 76 countries, which means 312 million Christians now face very high or extreme levels of persecution, which is to say one in seven Christians in our world, on our planet, is experiencing high levels of persecution. And of course, we have individual churches as well that are experiencing difficulties and conflicts. This church this year has gone through some tough times, as many churches are. 
COVID has pushed a lot of pastors out of the ministry, pushed a lot of people out of the pews. Staff changes. The picture isn't very pretty. And that, the picture I just painted doesn't include the personal crises that you and I are experiencing or are facing in 2024. It's a pretty grim way to start the new year. And I didn't mean to depress you, but that's, that's the view from where I see, where I sit. But the question that we ask when we come together as a body of believers is, okay, but what is God's view of 2024? What does he see on this last day of 2023? Well, in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Again, in Matthew 9, after seeing these massive crowds of of hurting people, broken people, people with diseases, we read in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he didn't get depressed. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for more workers to get out into the harvest. And maybe you sang or or you heard on the radio this Christmas, Handel's Messiah, and the quote from Revelation 11.15, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's with a cold, I'm really sorry. But the quote, and he shall reign forever and ever. What, What is God's view looking forward? He sees an unstoppable church and a bountiful harvest and a glorious throne. That's his view. And that's where we need to be lifted to his view. But what do we do with the crises around us? What do we do with the grim picture that we face? What does God expect us to do and and, and to be as we face crises? And that's what I want to talk about very quickly here today. What does he expect of us as we face crisis after crisis and we want to be lifted up to his view? Well, I believe that God has placed us, has placed his church in what I call a crucible, the crucible of crisis. He's using crisis as he has in the past to refine us, as James chapter 1 tells us. Remember Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers in a cistern and then later thrown into jail? God used that crisis to create a savior for his people. Do you remember Moses being chased out of Egypt alone and exiled in the desert? God used that dry, dry desert crisis to mold a leader. The Israelites, remember them trapped between Pharaoh's uh, chariots behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. What a crisis. God used that crisis to tell his people about his power and about his care. David, on the run from Saul, what was God doing there? He was already anointed, but he's on the run from Saul. God was refining David in those crises to become the leader of his people. All of these stories and more that we read about in Scripture, all of these crises, all these people were placed by God in a crisis 
which is like a crucible to refine them. You know, a crucible is one of the oldest methods of refining and uh, purifying metals. A craftsman would stoke an, an intense fire, and then he would take a crucible, a container that, would, could, that could withstand high, high temperatures. In some cases, the temperature might reach 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And he would stir the contents until it was molten, until the metal was molten. And then he began to skim off the dross, the impurities that rose to the top of the molten metal. And what that left was a more refined metal in the crucible. It was a dangerous job. It was a very profitable job. And the result was a pure gold, a pure silver. And in 1 Peter, we read that our faith needs refining. We need to be in a crucible. We read in 1 Peter 1, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So trials, crises, act as God's crucible on fire that refine us. And so the question as we look out on 2024 is, is more than how do we get out of this crisis, whether it's personal, whether it's political, whether it's worldwide. The question is more than that. The question is, if God has us in his crucible, what is the dross that he wants to remove? How is he refining our church? How is he refining my life? So let me share five kinds of dross today from God's word that he wants to remove from his church. And he uses crisis to do it. What does God want to skim off to refine our faith? That's the question for this morning. Dross number one is this, dependence on ourselves. Crisis bluntly tells us you're not in control. Stop depending on yourself. Crisis makes us pray because we wake up and we realize we can't control this. We're not in charge. Isn't that interesting how crisis makes us pray? At one point during the COVID pandemic, the news said a poll revealed that half the country was praying. (laughs) Because of a crisis. According to a Pew Research poll um, that was published March 30th, right in the middle of the the crisis, 2020, evangelicals, of course, were more likely to say they've prayed for an end to the virus, 82%. But among those who described their religion as nothing in particular, 36% they had prayed about the virus. Crisis makes us pray. It opens up the lifeblood of the church, which is our prayer. Because when we realize we can't depend on ourselves, we turn to God and we start praying. Do you remember the night before Peter's trial uh, in Herod's court? An angel released him from jail miraculously. Where was the church? Acts 12 tells us that, that Peter, when he was released, he knew where to go. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, Uh, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and they were praying. The crisis calls them to pray. And you know the the story, Peter knocks on the door and and a woman named Rhoda comes in and she sees it's him. She slams the door shut and goes back in and says, Peter's at the door. 
<laughs> you're, out of the, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. And Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. And Peter motioned them with his hand for them to be quiet, described to them how the Lord had miraculously brought him out of prison. And he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about, about this. And then he left to go find a church in another place. Crisis repositions our dependence away from ourselves and puts it back where it belongs, on God. So crisis can skim off our self-dependence, and we need that process. And if God's going to heal our land, if he's going to bring revival, then we need to pray. However, to pray in power, we must pray with humility. And boy, crisis does the job, doesn't it? When tough times come, we get onto our knees. Dross number two. How else does crisis refine us? Well, the heat of the crucible can remove our dependence on reserves. 95% of the food banks in America are struggling right now. You know why? Because Americans are struggling. We live in a land of great prosperity in comparison to the rest of the world, and many of us, not, not all of us, have lived with reserves for most of our lives. Maybe until now. Did you know Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania, leads the nation in food price inflation? Greater than California, greater than New Jersey. The prices of food in Pennsylvania have risen the highest and the fastest than any other state in the country. And that causes a lot of crisis and pressure on people's grocery bills and their wallets and their pocketbooks. But what happens when God's people are sensitive to the Spirit when a crisis happens like this? They go into their reserves and they begin to release their reserves. There's a grace of giving. We can detach from our reserves and we give. That's what God's people do in, the, in a crisis. There was a famine that was predicted in Acts 11 by a prophet in the church, and it came during the reign of Claudius. And the church was entering its teenage years. It was about 15 years old. How did the church respond to the famine in the Roman world? Well, Paul tells the, the people in Corinth the great response of the Macedonian churches uh, when the famine hit. <clears throat> this service, he says in 2 Corinthians 9, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Giving is called in this passage, obedience. Giving is called something that accompanies the confession of the gospel. That's a powerful phrase. If you confess the gospel of Jesus, giving goes alongside of that. You know, when Jesus was talking about faith without works is dead, he was actually talking about giving food and clothing. The widow gave pennies in Luke 21. And the Good Samaritan gave money and hospitality. Joseph in Genesis 45 gave to his siblings from a position of hurt 
when really logically he shouldn't have? And the Macedonian churches gave not out of extreme abundance. They gave out of extreme poverty, which means they gave when they didn't have a whole lot. So when the crisis hit, they gave up their reserves. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says of them, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich what? Generosity. Poverty welling up in rich generosity in the middle of a crisis. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They were saying, please let us give, but you don't have a whole lot, but please let us give. Generosity doesn't happen when you finally accumulate enough to give. Crisis unleashes this grace of giving, and it teaches us not to hoard our reserves. So crisis can make us more giving. What else can be skimmed off the top of our faith as God is trying to refine us um, through crisis? Number three, dependence on comfort. Our dependence on comfort. Why is it that the church explodes in times of persecution? Because the comforts of life, which can create a spiritual fog over our hearts, in crisis, that's removed. And so the pure principles of the church and of Jesus and the gospel become much clearer. Crisis clears the fogs. Crisis propagates the seed of sacrifice. When comfort goes out the window, the question is, what am I going to sacrifice here? The picture you might see up here is, is of the giant sequoias. How many of you have seen those giant sequoias had a chance to, to go out there west and see them? They're pretty amazing. The planet's largest trees and among the oldest living things on earth. Many of the largest are over 3,000 years old. But did you know that they depend on fire to reproduce? I didn't. Years of fire suppression by conservationists resulted in very little new growth they found back in the 70s. They're trying to keep the fires down so the trees could survive. But it was soon discovered that after a natural fire swept through a certain region, there was a lot more new growth that appeared. So they began to study. And what was discovered was that sequoias rely on fire to release most of their seeds from the cones. Fire also burns out the debris on the forest floor, which exposes mineral soil in which the seedlings can take root, and it opens up holes in the forest canopy to let more sun in. The other thing they discovered is that the bark of the sequoia is fascinating. It's flame retardant. So the great sequoias need fire in order to reproduce. Without fire, very little new growth. Without fire, other species compete for all the nutrients. But it's the fire that causes the growth. The fire of crisis propagates the seeds of growth. And so when Crisis skims off the comfort. The question is, what are you ready to sacrifice now? 
What did Jesus say about how comfortable your journey was going to be as a disciple? What did he say? Luke 9. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must not deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me every day, daily. It's not comfortable. And crisis will remind us of that. Crisis is a fire that burns the undergrowth that's choking our spiritual progress. It can kill off the things that are competing for our heart's devotion. Crisis will do that to us if we let it. And it's no coincidence that the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7, the first Christian martyr, it's no coincidence that after that we read this statement. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, Acts 8.1. The disciples were scattered. The seeds were scattered. Crisis propagates the seeds of sacrifice. And, and look where they, were sacrific- uh, where they went, Acts 8.1. They went to Judea and Samaria. Does it... Do those two locations sound familiar? Acts 8.1, flip that around. Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. What got them to Judea and Samaria? Crisis. The fourth kind of dross that can be removed through crisis is our dependence on convenience. When crisis enters our lives, many times convenience becomes a luxury. When crisis comes in, convenience goes out. And the question is, remains, well, where's your commitment now that it's not convenient? I have dear friends, uh, Ukrainian friends serving the church in Ukraine. And uh, they, are, they are in Kiev. And if you've seen the news... Um, it's getting bombed just about every other night. Um, most of their conveniences are in question right now, including running water. And so the question then is, where's my commitment now that conveniences are gone? The comfort's gone, the convenience is gone, this crisis, this trial is just bearing down on me. What am I going to do about my commitment? Well, crisis will authenticate our commitment. How authentic is our commitment? Crisis will tell you. Do you remember when Jesus was calling people to follow him uh, in Luke 9? And there's a couple of people who were like, wait a minute, I got a few things I got to do first. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, First, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He was pretty rough on these guys, wasn't he? I mean, you read that honestly. Jesus was pretty tough on these guys, but he had to be. They wanted to follow him when it was convenient for them on their own terms. So he laid it on thick to expose their divided hearts. 
Crisis has a way of exposing the authenticity of our commitment and our faith, doesn't it? The question resounds, are you going to hang in there when it's inconvenient, not just when it's convenient? Or is the inconvenience going to cause you to grumble? See, this is the refining process that our loving God is doing on us. Will you come out of this crisis with a diminished commitment to Jesus or a stronger commitment to Jesus? Crisis is going to expose, as the heat rises, it will expose the dross and help you become more authentic in your commitment to Christ. Committed, even though it's inconvenient. And finally, dross number five. I'm sure there are more as we study the rest of Scripture, but... As the, as the heat is turned up in this, in this crucible of crisis, whether it's one in your own life or a crisis in this church or the church worldwide, we find out how dependent we are on stability. And that's dross number five, our dependence on stability. There's routines and there are patterns that lend stability to our lives. And they may, they may not be bad. Our schedules, our phones, our paychecks, our friendships, our worship services even... We feel a sense of stability when everything is in its proper place. That is an apt description of my wife. If everything is in its place and at the right time, then <clears throat> life is good. The day after Christmas, she wanted the Christmas trees down. I'm like, no, they're so pretty. Let's, let's let it up. Well, it's not Christmas anymore. It's okay. We've got time. We come to depend on a lot of stability and control, and then a crisis hits. And that crisis will show us where our heart is resting for stability. You know, in Jesus' day, it was the temple. The temple was the center of the Jewish worship. It was the destination for their pilgrimage. It was what they honored in front of the Romans, our temple. And in conversations that he had with his disciples and, and the Jews... Jesus said some interesting things about the temple. Uh, the Jews responded to Jesus in, in John chapter 2. They said, what sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do all of this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And they replied, it's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? What was he doing? He was pointing out where their dependence was in a temple when it should have been in him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin later on. Uh, we read in John 11, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Not our temple, that is what we depend on. You get rid of our temple, you get rid of our faith. But of course, the temple he had spoken of was his body, and after he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. But Jesus was pointing out, you can't depend on a temple. The temple was the center of all their practices and their culture and their religion, and that's why they reacted so angrily. And even, even near the end of the Passion Week, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jerusalem, his disciples 
uh, came up to him and they called his attention to the buildings in Matthew 24. Do you see all these things Jesus Jesus, uh, uh, said to them? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. These things that you find your stability in, they're going to be toppled. And true to his word, we know by 70 AD, that temple was gone. Their stability was destroyed. And crisis will reveal where our hearts rely, where they, what, what they rest in for stability. And if we let it, when everything is up in the air, crisis can move us from the things that we think are giving us stability to the only one who can And that is worship of Christ himself. What do we really count on? What are we really really certain of? Our routines and our control? Or the one that we worship? It doesn't matter where or how we worship as long as our hearts are centered on him. We read for where two or three gathered in my name, there am I with them. Matthew chapter 18. And so crisis can cause us to crumble or it can cause us to get back on the rock, the real rock. Isaiah 26 says, trust in the Lord forever for the Lord. The Lord himself is the rock eternal. He is our stability. And so when crisis is causing us to shake, it makes us say, where is my stability? It's in you, Jesus my rock eternal. And I understand crisis can be frightening. The medical crisis, a surprise. And I understand that that crisis can be very frustrating, especially when it seems like it's never going to end. And crisis can even be infuriating because if if it wasn't caused by me but caused by somebody else, just makes us infuriated. But we can't forget what crisis is meant to do in us. We are in a crucible, and God wants to do something in us through that crisis. We can't place our dependence on our skill or our reserves or comfort or or, or convenience or stability or, or even in ourselves. He's using crisis to do a refining work, a loving refining work, in our personal lives, in our church life, in our world. And God has been telling his people for centuries, I want to do a work in you, but it's going to take the crucible of crisis. But layer after layer of prosperity and good times can easily cover up that work and that truth. Crisis begins to peel off the layers and reveal the true heart of the matter. It's a dangerous process, I know. If we submit to it, we may get burned. But God is refining something great in us. It's necessary to purify the precious nature of the gospel, the precious nature of the church, and I I would even say the, the beautiful gold of the gospel to allow him to do this work through Christ. And I hope today that you can see a, a new year, even though it's full of crisis, but you also see that it's, it's full of opportunities for God to do a work in us through those, through those crises, whatever they may be. How precious 
is the church. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's a different metaphor than a crucible, but it's the same truth. Just as Christ loved the church, his bride. The church is precious because she is the bride of Christ. And he's making her holy and radiant and blameless. And many, many times he does it through crisis. And today I believe that's what he's choosing to do. And the question is, will we see it that way? Let's close in prayer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Lord, your word says that there is no crisis that can separate us from you. From the love, the embrace of our resurrected, interceding friend who sits at the right hand of God, Jesus, you. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. God, lift our heads and open our eyes. Help us to see an unstoppable church and a bountiful harvest and a glorious throne in the midst of the crises that are brought to us in 2024. We release our, our control of our lives to you. And we ask that you would refine our faith, refine our families, refine our church to bring you praise and glory. And give us the eyes to see what you are doing in our world and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.